Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August 31st, 2012, and it is Friday, Friday, Friday. And if the Friday, Friday, Friday voice doesn't have as much depth and range to it, it's because I'm on a USB headset today because I am uh, holed up, uh, riding out the uh, remnants of Hurricane Isaac, which is really nothing at all here. It it was kind of a letdown. I was about 100% sure that one way or another we would lose power. We have a lot of trees hanging over uh, some of the power lines. And uh, I don't know, maybe I'm weird as a prepper, but sometimes I like to have to deal with minor emergencies because it helps me test my preps. And if you're going to get one, a tropical storm is, you know, a fair enough way to get one. But didn't even have the power flicker. We had the center of the, uh, the I guess it's a tropical depression now. The eye of the tropical depression passed almost directly over uh, the uh, the homestead about 5 a.m. this morning. The dog woke me up. He wanted to go out. It finally had stopped raining after about 18 hours, so I figured I'd better take him out while it was. So I took them out. It was uh, calm and uh, no rain, no wind, and went back to bed for about another 45 minutes. And uh, it started pouring again, and now it's just outside with a constant steady rain. And it seems like those of us that had the uh, the thing pass directly over us actually did much better, uh, which is typical than those of us to the east. Uh, people east of Little Rock have been dealing with uh, thunderstorms. I haven't even heard a thunderclap. Um, high winds, we've had pretty good winds, but... It just isn't that big a deal. No different than a typical uh, summer thunderstorm, except that it's lasted for, you know, I don't know. It's probably going on 18 hours now, and we're expecting another uh, probably until about 5 o'clock tonight. So another, what, 8 or 9 hours of rain and, and wind before it starts to clear out of here because it's moving so slow. But out in eastern Arkansas, Louisiana, all along the Mississippi River system and all, they're dealing with flash floods and things like that. and. Fortunately, we haven't had that here. I really thought we would have problems with flooding in downtown Hot Springs. I haven't been down there, but I, I thought it would be the case. It doesn't seem like it is. I've had the NOAA weather alert radio on, and uh, I've had several alerts go off in the night, and I always do that when there's heavy storm systems where tornadoes are a possibility because that's not something you, you'd much rather be woken up by the NOAA weather radio uh, than be woken up by the sound of your roof being sheared from your your house. Uh, but... Uh, Everything that went off was for flash flood warnings, and they were far enough away that I didn't really care and just turned it off and went back to sleep. So that's kind of a status update. Uh, no big stories to tell or anything, which is good. That's really what you want when you're dealing with one of these situations. But we were prepared. Since it is raining, though, and it will rain all day long, and there will be some, you know, probably flash flood zones in the passes going down off of the mountain that my uh, my homestead's on, uh, and that may make uh, getting back up here difficult later in the day. I decided it wasn't right to leave the animals alone. And since Dorothy is off in our, our place in Dallas, I decided to stay here with the dogs and broadcast from the kitchen table today. So um, what are we going to do today? Well, since it's Friday, 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 we're going to do your calls uh, into 866-65-THINK. Now, don't pick that phone up and call right now. I think you're going to call in live because it's 
the show's not live. If you're a new listener, it's a podcast. I don't know where you found it, but you're listening to it after it was recorded and put up. But you can call right now, and you might hear yourself on the air within a week or two, three at most. If you call and within three weeks don't hear yourself on the air, it's probably a good idea to go ahead and call again. One way or another, your call uh, got filtered out, and most of it is due to call volume. Occasionally, there's a technical issue. If you call into this show while running a weed eater, a chainsaw, or a lawnmower, or from the back of a motorcycle, I can promise you, you will not get on the air. Now, I'm being a little ridiculous there, because I know nobody's actually doing that. I think one guy did it to be funny, uh, which I actually got, I got a good laugh at it, because I could tell it was a weed eater. Um, but some people do call with like this really bad background noise, like they're in a car with the window open. Uh, or that maybe they're somewhere where somebody's doing some landscaping and they, they cut out of work. And if you're going to call from a cell phone, make sure you got three bars or more and try to find a quiet area, and you'll have a much better chance of getting on the show. Before I take your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors today. Sponsor of the day number one today is the Free State Project. You know you can vote a lot of ways. You can vote by going to the ballot box and casting your, your, your ballot for the next person that's going to ruin our country. Uh, you can vote by going down and voting in your local area where you'll actually have a bigger impact for like your town council and your city government and your county commissioners and things like that. That's where you really can have, a, I, th- I still believe, an effect uh, with your vote, at least at lo- the local government uh, level. And, uh, you know, you can do that. You can also vote with your dollars. One way we can vote is with our dollars because if somebody puts out a product and we don't like it and we don't buy it, we're saying, hey, we don't like that. And then they'll give us a better product or somebody else will give us a better product. Or if a company engages in stupid behavior, we can not buy from them because of their stupid behavior. And then maybe other companies will step up and do good things. So we have all these different ways we can vote. But there's another way to vote. It's called with your feet. It was what our republic was founded on. And the, the, the idea was that we would have these experimental factories of liberty, this republican government, And each state would compete for the best and the brightest based on its own practices. And and that's why the majority of the power constitutionally is rested with the states and the people, respectively. And just in case anybody got confused about that, you know, they put together this Ninth and Tenth Amendment to make that clear. And the federal government seems to have forgotten its place and decided that it will tell us what to do. Well, a small group of people... Uh, trying to become a large group of people, numbering in the thousands now, have relocated to New Hampshire, chosen it as the free state, and decided to prove out this concept by making New Hampshire the most free state in the Union. They're well on their way to doing on that, and they are asking for your help. You can help by pledging to move to New Hampshire once 20,000 people pledge to move. Even though already well over 1,000 have already made the move, there's more people who have pledged than have actually moved. You can also help just by getting involved with their organization. For instance, they don't pay me to sponsor their program. I sponsor them. I gave them this advertising slot for free because I believe in what they're doing. You can attend events like Porkfest, which is not what it sounds like. It's Porcupine Festival, Porkfest for short, or the Liberty uh, Forum. And if you come to the Liberty Forum next year, I can promise you I'm probably going to be there. I'm probably going to be speaking. I want a relationship with these folks, even though I'm not going to New Hampshire. I want to help these people uh, for as long as I can, hopefully, for the rest of my life. So check out check them out today at freestateproject.org. Next up today is Harvest Eating. You know, we just had a 
guy on yesterday told us about like all kinds of really cool exotic fruit. I'm always talking about different plants and things. And well, what do you do with all this stuff once you have all these these things that you've maybe never eaten before? Maybe you get involved with a CSA, like I said, and you go down there and they hand you like an Armenian cucumber that's like you know bigger than your kid's arm or something like that, or you get some kind of weird winter squash and you're like, what the heck do I do? You know, or you plant it and this this vine grows 36 feet away from your yard and you end up with all these winter squash. You're like, what do I do with this stuff? Get on over to HarvestEating.com, where Chef Keith Snow will teach you cooking as a life skill and show you how to use all of these different foods so that you can cook seasonally and locally and become a better cook no matter what you're cooking. Check him out today and get some of his seasoning. Today I will be cooking uh, pork spare ribs with his low and slow barbecue uh, seasoning, and uh, I'm quite looking forward to it, and it will cook slowly all day long. And with this rain, I won't be running the smoker. I'll be running it on the gas grill, but I bet you it will still be amazing. I also want to remind you guys about TSP Copper. Check out TSP Copper for some cool copper medallions. Remember, all the pricing you see there is per roll, not per coin. They're very affordable ways to spread a variety of really cool messages like the Second Amendment, Republic of Texas, the work of Ron Paul, and, of course, the Survival Podcast and the real truth about money. Also want to remind you guys about Hickory, North Carolina. Would love to see you there. Uh, if you want to know more about the Self-Reliance Expo in Hickory, North Carolina, in today's show notes, there'll be a link for you. Just click it. And uh, the early meet and greet is shaping up pretty well. I need to get back with, to Ron and Scott with some people I've rounded up, tell them the people from their list who I want on there. And due to some delays and things like that, I think the formal announcement about the early meet and greet will go out on Monday of next week. But just know this. If you show up at 830 uh, a half hour before the doors open, and I would say show up around 8.15 on Saturday uh, of the event. You'll be allowed in about a half hour early. You'll get to meet me, some other cool people, and each other before the general public gets in. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the member support brigade. I've gone long because of uh, telling you about what went on today, so I'm just going to say check it out. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service, email me before you join. All right, with that. Let's go ahead and get into uh, your first call of the day, and it is a good one. Hey, Jack. This is Chris in Midland, Texas. I was sitting out here today and cleaning out my garden, getting it ready for the fall garden, pulling out all kinds of tomato plants, and just making some observations. One of the things I noticed today was that the plants that I had planted, the tomato plants that I had planted upright and in cages, you know, they got blight because we're in Texas, and that's what Texans deal with. But I noticed that some of my volunteer tomatoes, which I pretty much ignored and just kind of let them grow along the ground as a, as a living mulch. Uh, those were more prolific. More tomatoes were buried on it. I'm actually uh, finding uh, tomatoes everywhere. And, and the funny thing is those, had, those plants had no blight at all, none. And I have one that I purposely planted, and it's got blight, and it's standing upright. So my comment is, could there be some connection between how the plant or how the tomato plants put it in the ground and it uh, being more receptive or higher probability of getting blight? Just a thought. But just trying to listen to my garden and see what it's telling me. So thanks for the show. Have a great day. Well, it's a great question, and to me it has kind of a multiplicity of answers. I would say first and foremost, whenever we get a volunteer plant, especially when we've grown an heirloom variety and we've got a good repeatable seed, that means that let's say a tomato fell to the ground. And inside that tomato there could have been 100 seeds. And it went through that kind of fermentation, scummy process that I talked about last week with a question about how do you save tomato seeds, right? And then it sat out there all winter long, and it dealt with microorganisms and inoculants and things that would cause problems and things that maybe would spur health and things that maybe we don't even understand. And then it didn't germinate 
in February when we forced it so we could have tomatoes early, it waited till the conditions were absolutely right, and those hundred or so seeds from that one tomato competed with each other, and one mighty seedling rose from the muck. And that's going to be the hardiest, most badass little seedling that could possibly come out of that tomato. And that means we're just going to start off with a badass tomato. The other thing we're going to get is absolutely no shock to the root system. Now, blight typically enters tomatoes through the roots. People hear about how it can be spread from you know, getting the leaves wet and having it make contact with the ground. And it can, but this, the, the organism itself is, is a soil-based organism, and generally it will enter through the roots and travel up through the plant. And that's why you'll often see tomatoes with really nice-looking tops, and the bottom is, is, is you know, decrepit and, and dying, and it'll slowly, and if we get, you know, early blight, a lot of times it eventually catches up to the plant and kills it off. Where a lot of times late blight, the plant basically outgrows the blight. Like the blight chases it, but indeterminate tomatoes are so vigorous, they, they kind of get away, and eventually maybe things level off and, and we don't deal with the issue. So that could be one part of it. Um, the other part of it, again, since it's planted directly into the soil, and we can do this with direct sowing and planting our own seeds directly into the ground, um, that means that the roots are very, very stable in the ground. They've found their own pathways. They've never been kind of damaged in any way from circling around a pot or anything like that. And while tomatoes are probably the most um, easy plant to transplant with the least amount of shock, there is still some damage to the roots. And if we get a root entry of this organism, and we have cut, bent, twisted roots, it's likely it would be more easy to get in there. So that would be another thing. Then there's another thing that you mentioned there that I'm beginning to believe, and it doesn't make sense when we hear, when it touches the ground, the blight, but I grew Romas this year, and they got hit heavy with blight. Some were Romas that I planted myself, some came from a nursery. The reason some came from a nursery is some of my Romas died while I was away because they were in the greenhouse, it was unheated, and it got cold enough without me here to kind of go save them either by with a heater or bringing them in the house for the night. Most of them didn't make it, but I had a handful that did, and I replaced the ones that died with them from the nursery. They all got some blight, every single one of them. The ones from the nursery got a lot more blight. Maybe there's something to surviving the cold there. I don't know, right? But it just seems like, hey, these guys made it through the cold. They got blight. They weren't as effective. But right now, all of them have survived. I only staked them up about three and a half feet using some hickory saplings that I harvested from my property. And I kind of let them fall over. And they're going through high grass. And they're just kind of going on the ground, trolling on the ground through high grass. And they look gorgeous. We got a lot of tomatoes. We kind of got that harvest. The August heat came in as typical. They stopped producing. Now they're blossoming. Now they've got green tomatoes everywhere. And we'll probably harvest a crap load of tomatoes between, let's say, about two weeks from now, we'll probably start getting some ripe ones again. And we'll harvest right up until around here, maybe as late as, as close to Halloween before the cold enough weather will come in. And it seems like where they're just doing their own thing, they're less prone to bright, blight. So this has me thinking maybe you're right about the whole let it grow in its natural habitat instead of always trying to put it up on a stake, which is hard for me because I grew up with a grandfather that sent me out every year with a machete or a hatchet and said, come back with, with, with some stuff to stake the tomatoes up and make sure it's you know nine feet tall so when we put it a foot and a half in the ground, the tomatoes can grow seven feet. And they did, and they always did beautiful. We had no blight in Pennsylvania. So 
that's that's one thing. Now, I'm also beginning with the polyculture to think the more things around a plant, the less harassed it is. Here's why. I've got uh, a pretty good yield of squash that I got this year, mainly winter squash, holeless pumpkins, regular pumpkins, some white Kershaw, some butternuts. But most of them over the past three weeks succumbed to the squash bugs. They fought and they fought and they fought and they held out, and then they they're done. But then I've got these other squashes that are growing in big, you know, weedy fields. You know, so they're surrounded with tall grass. And one that's growing up the side of an oak tree. Now, one that's growing up the side of an oak tree, the whole damn vine is dead, except for the end of it that's on the oak tree, and it looks like it's been untouched. So I'm thinking that we need to start paying more attention to plants that would like to be forest edge plants and giving them more of an edge habitat. And that might give them a lot of resistance to blight and insect pests as well. So one of the things I really want to do next year, regardless of where we're at, is have some level of forest edge area, just native trees, and grow squash in that edge and grow squash in a more typical environment and see which one does better with the squash bugs. But I already think I'm going to know the answer. So I think we're on to something here with the direct seeding, but the squash, I've all direct seeded this year. So that's one part of it. Allowing a natural growth habitat and creating a polycultured environment. If you have these tomatoes, like you described, like sprawl all over the ground, then they're probably like underneath pepper plants and things like that. That's creating that same effect. So I think it's a combination, but I think if you live anywhere where you can direct sow tomato, it might might be a great way to go. Hell, maybe the easiest thing to do is just plant a tomato at the end of the year. You know, everywhere you want to plant, take an old tomato and just lay it on top of the ground and cover it with a big pile of mulch. And next year, when tons of seedlings come up, just wait until you see one that looks dominant, thin the other ones out. Maybe try that. I, I don't know. But I think that the closer we can get to natural reproduction of a plant, the more resistant it's going to be to blight, to other diseases, to insect pests, you name it. I know that my really healthy plants, like the insects, didn't bother at all. And that's the best thing we can always do, regardless of how we're getting them in the ground, is make them as healthy, nutrient-rich as possible. And insects generally, unless you get a plague of locusts or something, they want to predate on the weak plants. And if you look at two plants, and one is really, really healthy, and one looks kind of weak before they get bothered by insects... You know, early in the year before the insects show up, watch which one takes it on the chin harder from the, watch the one they go to first. It's always the weaker one. Great call, great points. Hopefully that helps you. Let's take another call. Hi, this is Ronnie in Iowa. My question is for Chef Keith Stone. I try to stay away from sugar and corn syrup, so I use stevia for my sweetener. Have you used stevia in your cooking experiences and what success or failures can you share? In use, having used it. Uh, also, I am growing a stevia plant, but I really don't know how to use fresh stevia, so any input on that would be greatly appreciated as well. Thank you very much. Well, cool. So, uh, expert panel question. Remember, if you want to ask a question like this, uh, just uh, just let us know that it's for one of the panel members, and uh, we'll get them to answer it. Uh, that's made up of Chef Keith Snow, who we're about to hear from, Tim Glantz, uh, who is uh, a specialist in uh, vehicles and comm systems, uh, Steve Harris, who's a specialist in uh, anything and everything alternative energy, um, 
Joe Nobody, who would be uh, the kind of bug-out, blackout level of tactical stuff. Frank Sharp Jr., uh, who is a tactical trainer. So uh, those are our expert council members. And now let's hear this question answered by one of my favorite people, the, uh, the infamous Chef Keith Snow. Hey, Chef Keith Snow here. I uh, wanted to answer the question that came in to the expert panel about stevia and what my thoughts are on stevia and good ways to use it. Now, stevia is a wonderful plant, very easy to grow, by the way. It definitely is a tropical plant, and some people will think that they're not able to grow it because they you know, live in a cooler climate. But as long as you have some good soil, uh, sandy, loamy soil, you can grow stevia. And with regards to preps, we'll talk about that first, uh, I definitely suggest storing sugar. And a lot of people struggle with uh, how much sugar they should store. I mean, it is not probably feasible to have five years of sugar unless you've got a really safe and large you know, storage area for your prepped food. Um, it's probably not that feasible to store that much. But I would suggest you know, maybe six months to a year of sugar. And you simply, you know, Get out a pen and paper and think about how you and your family use sugar, whether it be, you know, a teaspoon in two teaspoons a day in, in three cups of coffee, or maybe you're somebody that bakes a lot of pies and cakes and you use, you know, uh, a cup of sugar twice a week. Whatever that number is, try and find that number. And uh, I would add, you know, 10 to 15 percent to it. And then just extrapolate it out in a fancy mathematical calculation to figure out how many pounds of sugar you should store. And you'll definitely want to store sugar uh, inside of mylar, in my opinion, that's sealed shut, and then inside of five-gallon buckets and probably up off the ground. Because as we know, sugar can send off... uh, um, you know, the signals to the rats and mice and, and ants and other insects that like to get in there. Now, of course, growing sugar cane really isn't feasible unless you probably live in the Florida Keys. Even then, I'm not sure if you can grow it. But most people can grow stevia. And they say stevia is about 200 times sweeter than sugar. How the heck they come up with those numbers, I have no idea. But let's just assume it's it's sweeter than sugar. The one thing I do not like about stevia is it definitely has an aftertaste. And if you have something that's sweetened with sugar, you know, you perceive sweetness, but you don't perceive an aftertaste. And that aftertaste in my palate is similar to sweeteners, um, artificial sweeteners, and, and like saccharin and things like that, those, you know, the pink packets. Ugh. And I definitely do not recommend that anybody use those artificial sweeteners. I don't think they're safe personally. And there's been some um, new, really big ones. I'm not going to mention their name that have come out recently. You've um, all seen the ads for these things. But uh, I definitely recommend, if you're going to sweeten something, use sugar. And, of course, I'm not a doctor giving medical advice. Uh, if your doctor advises otherwise, I'd probably listen to him before me. But an average person that doesn't have any um, blood sugar problems, I would probably be using you know, coconut palm sugar or straight sugar to sweeten things. But a great alternative, if you don't mind the aftertaste, is stevia. So there's a lot of ways that you can use fresh stevia. You can just pluck the leaves off the plant, make sure they're clean, don't have any uh, nasties on them. And let's say you, you want to make, for instance, uh, lemonade. It's still hot summer right now. 
You can take two cups of water, and this is something where if you go to harvesteating.com and search for iced tea, there's a video on there that shows you how to make iced tea using two cups of water. Now, I've always found it interesting. Some people will make iced tea, which needs to be served cold, and they'll boil a couple of gallons of water and put their tea bags in there, and it takes forever for that to cool off and get to to be making uh, iced tea with it. It's the same thing with lemonade. You only need two cups of water to make your infusion. In this case with the stevia, two cups of water, put in as many stevia leaves as you like. It's going to be very sweet, and this is something where I can't really tell you how many you're going to need. It's, it's, uh, it's a palate thing. But let's just say you're using five stevia leaves and two cups of water. You boil the water, put it in. I like to use Pyrex, you know, a little Pyrex glass measuring cup. Two cups of water boiled. I use an electric tea kettle, um, but that doesn't really matter. Add your tea leaves, and I would cover it with just some plastic wrap or, heck, even tin foil. Let it sit for 15 minutes or so. But not much longer than that because you can get some um, bitter essence if you let it steep too long. So let's just say 15 minutes max. Remove the leaves, and now you've got a sweetened infusion. You can add that to cold water with ice and fresh-squeezed lemon juice, and you've got a great, completely natural uh, lemonade. This is an excellent dish. Now, it is going to have that slight little aftertaste that stevia brings. Now, if that does not bother you... um, then you're all set. And, you know, personally, I would rather just deal with a little aftertaste of, of uh, stevia than have to store mountains and mountains of sugar. Because, like I said, how much sugar can you really realistically store if things did get bad here in the United States? It makes a lot of sense for preppers to have that stevia plant out in the garden. Another way people use stevia is to dry the leaves. And this is um, this is great for long-term storage. When you, when you compare storing sugar... And dried stevia leaf, uh, you know, number one, the weight, the space difference, uh, stevia wins hands down. You can take those leaves and fill up sheet trays that can go in your food dehydrator if you have one. Or another great way to do it is just in your oven. A couple sheet trays in the oven, turn it way down, as, as low as it can go. I find that most ovens are about 170 degrees is their low setting. And then you want to prop that oven door open. And what we use is... We have a silicone, uh, what do you call it, like a hot pad. And we just take that thing and roll it up, and then we prop the door open. Nothing's going to happen to the silicone. And then a lot of that air is going to escape, but it's also going to create a, a convection effect because hot air rises. So that hot air is going to come from the bottom of the oven, pass you know, over your stevia leaves and out. And that will actually dry much, much faster than a food dehydrator. And I've been finding recently, you know, to go off on a little tangent, we were drying some tomatoes the other day, and uh, they were little cherry tomatoes, heirloom tomatoes. We cut them in half, removed, um, you know, just about all the seeds and the and the liquid, put them on our on our trays in our food dehydrator, and we were talking almost probably more than 24 hours, which is an awful lot of electricity to get some dried tomatoes. That same thing could have been done in four to six hours in the oven with the door open like I described. So I uh, I was quite uh, disappointed in my dryer for, for tomatoes. But for stevia leaves, it's uh, obviously much easier to dry a stevia leaf than a little cherry tomato. But once they're dried, you can just, you can literally use your fingers if they're very dry and, and crush them up into a fine powder or a mortar and pestle uh, or a little spice grinder, what have you. And then once those leaves are dry, you're going to want to at least double bag them 
And uh, if you've got one of those little, um, you know, oxygen absorbers or moisture absorbing little packets, those are good to keep moisture out of your stevia because if any moisture gets in there, it'll spoil in a heartbeat and, you know, you can get mold and other things. So make sure you're going, you know, a good day to do that is a, a low humidity day. Right now, as I record this, it's 93% ridiculous, sticky humidity. Wouldn't be a good day to be working with stevia because uh, there's a lot of moisture in the air. So choose a day where you've got a pretty low uh, humidity day going on, and uh, that's a good way to make that stevia powder. Um, that can be mixed in. A lot of folks will add sugar to like a tomato sauce to help cut some of the acid back. You can use a little pinch of stevia powder like that. You can put in the whole leaves for that matter. So it does have a multitude of uses. Like I said, my only caveat with it is a slight aftertaste. But uh, I am finding a lot more products in the store, you know, usually in your health food store, Whole Foods and Earth Fair, places like that. A lot of things, whether it be beverages or power bar type things or just uh, drinks, are being sweetened with stevia. So there is a little movement underway. I definitely think that uh, it's smart to uh, grow it, and hopefully this helps give you a little idea um, on how to use uh, this wonderful plant that we know of as stevia. So that's it, folks. I just want to uh, encourage any of you listening to check out HarvestEating.com. Also, the television show runs weekly, Tuesdays at 4 p.m. on RFD-TV, which is on all of your major satellite and cable providers. And those of you that don't want cable or satellite and are interested in something called a Roku, R-O-K-U, Roku box, about 50 bucks at Walmart or Best Buy, wherever they sell them. And you can get tons and tons of incredible programming for free right on your TV, on demand, including the Harvest Eating Roku channel. And we're excited. We uh, launched our, our new free channel on Roku uh, less than five days ago, and we're almost at 6,000 subscribers. So we appreciate that and definitely encourage you, if you have a Roku box, to add our channel. That's it, folks. Uh, grow some stevia and take care. Well, great, great stuff from Keith Snow as usual. But believe it or not, i got a few things to add to that. Um, one of the things Keith didn't touch on is how easy it is actually to make your own stevia extraction. I like to use stevia primarily as an extract. I first discovered stevia many years ago when I found it in a health food store. came in a little dropper bottle, and you make a little eye, you get a little eyedropper, and about one drop of that was equivalent to a teaspoon of sugar. That's what the bottle said. I found it a little bit sweeter, but once I understood what I was dealing with, I knew that I could, you know, you know, use it in coffee and things like that. And I've got a point now, and I, I think one of the things about sweetening, folks, is if you stop sweetening stuff, you stop craving sugar. You, and, and, and like things that used to be really good to you are like way too sweet. So another thing is just backing off the sweetener except where you need it. But certain things taste better with a sugar component to them. So I want to tell you how you can make your own stevia extract with alcohol and how to get real quick uh, an estimate based on any batch you make, uh, how to use it, basically get a, sh a sugar equivalent off of it. So here's what you do. You get some grain alcohol. And the best thing to use would be like high-proof vodka or go nuts with the Everclear, you know, like the the, the really the stuff that says warning flammable, because we're going to dilute this anyway. And you're not, and they, those of you that are like, I don't want to drink, you're going to use so little of this, it isn't going to matter. You're going to get far more alcohol probably from a, an over the counter liquid medication than you are from this when we use it the way that we're going to use it. So hear me out on it. So we take however many stevia leaves we want, and we put them into uh, a glass container with our grain alcohol. 
and we just let them sit there overnight. Strain them out the next day. You're almost done. I, th- that's how easy this is. Then cut that with about 50% water. And that means you're going to want to use a lot of stevia leaf to do this with. And, and you can bruise it. Like, like, keep talking about a mortar and pestle, like, especially like if you have like a wooden mortar and pestle. If you use like, like a mechaholte, uh, me- I can't remember how you say it now, mechaholte, which is like the one that's made out of volcanic rock, and I'll get all stuck in there, but if you've got a smooth mortar and pestle, you can bruise it a little bit, kind of like you would mint for a mint julep, if you know what the hell that is, and, or, or mint for a, uh, what, what's that, uh, drink that, uh, God, what is this? It's like a Caribbean margarita with rum. A mojito, right? Uh, like, kind of like that. And so you get this extract of the stevia, and it's going to be extremely sweet. It's going to also be pretty high in alcohol. We'll cut that with about 50% water. And then here's what we're going to do. We're going to get two glasses of equal size. How much really doesn't matter, but a cup would be a good thing to use. We want it tepid, room temperature. That way the sugar will dissolve. Get yourself a teaspoon. Take a teaspoon of white sugar. Put it in one glass and stir it up till the sugar dissolves. Put one drop of stevia in the other cup. Get something like a salty meat, like jerky or something, something to cleanse your palate, just a little bite of that in between. Taste the sugar water and rate it based on your opinion, 1 to 10, how sweet is it? With 10 being like, oh, my God, it's too sweet, uh, with 0 being like, I taste no sweetness at all, and maybe you rate it, oh, a 4. Then, you know, give the palate a cleanse, taste your stevia water, and then rate that. Is it a 2? If it's a 2... Taste it again to make sure, and then your equivalency is two drops to a teaspoon of sugar. See how simple that is? If it's, like, overly sweet, double the water in the glass. So if you had 8 ounces, take it up to 16 ounces and taste it. If that brings it down to tasting like the sugar because you made a really intense extract, now you know that one teaspoon of what you have is equal to, or one drop is equal to, or one, one drop is equal to two teaspoons. In that case, the easy solution is, and maybe do it half at first, you know, start adding more water to your extract. You know, double it and get it to where it's down to a drop a teaspoon. If it's, if it's too low, then you just need to use two drops. Now, here's the advantage of this. Since it's made with alcohol, even when you cut it down dramatically with water, you end up with a very shelf-stable product. And then you can put it in a little bottles, and you can label it, and with a couple stevia plants, you can make hundreds of dollars worth of stevia extract if you went out and bought it, and know it's not the same process they use, and know it's not exactly the same, but it works the damn same. Now, let me add to this some other thoughts about the aftertaste. First of all, I know there is an aftertaste. I know what Keith's saying, but it ain't like saccharin. It ain't like NutraSweet. It ain't like any of that stuff. It's not anywhere near as pronounced, and that stuff I cannot handle. I never have been able to. You know, if, if somebody's ever handed me a Diet Coke and I didn't know it, you know, even back when I used to drink Cokes and stuff, I'm like, sorry, I can't drink that. Well, it's diet, but it's no, it's it's it's, it's garbage. I'm sorry. And I, I agree with Keith that those sweeteners are not safe. I also want to point out, when you go to the store and you buy these new sweeteners that are supposed to be based on stevia, when they're not extracts, when they're in crystals, if you read the ingredients, there's some of that other crap in most of them. So it's not pure stevia, and that's why I won't use it. If I buy stevia instead of make it myself, I want the extract form in liquid. It's stable, it works, and it measures perfectly. Now, here's how we mitigate the aftertaste and still reduce our sugar. Use 50-50. And then instead of using cane sugar, use honey. It's amazing what happens when we do that. We get all the nutrition of honey. 
We don't use that much honey. We reduce our caloric intake of sugars. We reduce our blood spike. And we can even do 75-25 with 75 toward the stevia. And we can use pure white sugar, too. I, I'm for storing sugar. I'll tell you one, one good reason to store white sugar. You want to talk about a barter tool. If everything really goes uh, goes bad in this country, what do you think a cup of white sugar is going to be worth? Let me put it to you another way. What do you think a cup of white sugar was worth out on the plain states as, the, as early America was being settled? It was worth a lot. It was a big deal to be able to buy one sack of sugar. I mean, that was that was a big treat for a family in, in you know settling early on, especially before the railroad started coming through. It was highly valuable, so I would say that as well. But that's how you can make you know an alcohol-based uh, extract of stevia, and that's how you can get an equivalency out of it. It's really simple. It's to your own taste, which is what matters most, and it's how you can make an awful lot of it awful cheap. So great stuff from Keith. Hopefully the value add I gave there rocks on, so let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Luke from Washington State. I was just wondering, in your opinion, is it worth the money to go to a permaculture design course? I want to obtain a permaculture design certificate and steer myself in the direction of doing permaculture consultation, site development, or teaching in the future. Unfortunately, I'm not that free at the moment, so it's kind of a question of whether or not it's a good idea to spend the money on the course or pay off more debt. I love the podcast, keep spreading the good word, and hopefully, collectively, we can heal the world. Thanks. Starting out, for those that maybe haven't listened in the past and might not know exactly what is being asked here, let's start with what what permaculture is and what a PDC is. Permaculture is a system of design an agricultural agrarian-based system of design designed to create a sustainable human culture. And it's much bigger than just the agricultural component because as you start to expand out the design science and the troubleshooting science, it applies to things like businesses and, and ways that we can do a better job with everything that we do. And it's a design science is the best way to describe it. A PDC is a permaculture design course and when you attend one of those, at the end of it, uh, you'll get a certification that says you've completed that course. And that certification uh, says things like, and in your business, you can use the term permaculture. Here's the thing that nobody wants to say, but it happens to be true. Bill Mollison uh, did coin the word and says that the word is held by the Permaculture Institute of Australia and therefore is a trademark term, cannot be used professionally without their consent. Uh, which is easy to obtain, go to a PDC. All right. Except that when it was challenged in court, it was not upheld, and really there's nothing legally to prevent anybody from using the term in any business that they do anywhere. It doesn't mean you should do it. I'm not suggesting that you do it. I think if you're going to use the term, and you're going to say you're doing what the founder of the movement created, and you're utilizing his value that you should probably go to a PDC and get it the way that he intended. But it's, it's, it's an ethical consideration, not a legal one at this point. And if anyone can show me where that's changed, I'd love to see it. I, I was kind of shocked when I heard this. I always thought it was the way, other way around. Um, and I know that Mollison himself said his biggest reason for doing this was to protect it from universities. In other words, he didn't want, you know, universities saying they were teaching permaculture because in his own words, universities destroy things. 
and you should flee them as quickly as possible. Now, I'm not as big on fleeing universities as Mollison is, but some of you have heard my thoughts on college education, and I think that half of the people in college, they don't belong there. Right? But, but the other half probably do. But I, I get his point with something like permaculture. So you could, without any real legal challenge, say that your permaculture is part of your business without going to the PDC. And I, I don't think... And if anybody out there is an attorney and wants to examine this and give us an update, because I'm not an attorney and I don't give legal advice, but I personally don't think there's a damn thing anybody could do or would do. And I've never heard of anybody from the Permaculture Institute going after anybody for using the word. Um, I do know that they've had some conflicts with people for supposedly teaching and certifying others without their blessing. And to me, that's a, a separate issue. But I don't even think they've been able to enforce that. So from a legal standpoint... Is it necessary? No. What will you get out of a PDC? I think it's highly dependent on where you go. I've been to a couple, and in one, it was all academia and a lot of hippie crap, to be honest with you, especially in the after-hours portions. And it was, but I still got the core. When I just went to a portion of Ben Falk's, about half of the course, it was all the academia and so much more hands-on. I would say if you're going to go to one, if Ben even teaches another true PDC, that whole systems design is an amazing place to go. They had workshops on chicken slaughtering, uh, workshops on chains- chainsaw use. Uh, they had me come in and talk about the preparedness aspects and how there's an overlap. Uh, it was the most hands-on thing I've ever seen. It was almost like a wilderness skill, homestead skill set, and permaculture merged together. If you wanted the low-cost, cost-effective way to get it from the horse's mouth, you could buy the DVD set. It'll run you about 400 bucks by the time you're done paying for shipping from the Permaculture Institute of Australia and, and watch the entire PDC given by who I consider the two masters, Mollison and Lawton. And I think that other than the bonding experience and learning from other people, and, and you know, I'll get to that in a second, the, the academic component, you, I think you get as much out of it. You won't have anybody to look at your design and tell you whether or not it's a good design. And I think that's something that they could add to that. You know, do a design and, and, and upload it and that let, you know, people from the Institute critique it. I'll talk to Jeff about that, about maybe it's one way to magnify the educational effect. Because that's one of the things you're not going to get is feedback on a design that you do. So, and, and I would say that with some of the PDC stuff and pieces of the permaculture design curriculum that I've seen elsewhere – You'll get more out of Jeff Lawton than you will out of just about anybody doing it today, especially when it comes to Earthworks design and things like that. So it might be a better, more cost-effective, more time-effective way to do things. But there is another component. When you go to a PC, uh, a PDC, you will find hippie nirvana people. You will find people just like me. You will find everyday people. You will find people on the fringe and the center of everything across the board. And in everything that I've ever been involved with that involved permaculture, these various minded people, people that are, you know, basically will worship at the altar of Al Gore and believe that permaculture exists specifically to address climate change, which didn't even exist in academia at the time that Mollison created it. Right, and that's what they believe, and it's in their heart. And they almost feel hurt when they hear, you know, this started in '72 when we were worried about global cooling, and Molson didn't give a damn. This was to address the damage being done by modern agriculture, right? And then you'll find like a gun-toting survivalist guy like me, and somehow 
that broad spectrum of people manage to get along and learn from each other. And that may be the biggest value you'll get by going to an on-site PDC. Uh, and, and if you have a time issue, another option is Bill Wilson at Midwest Permaculture, because you'll get a lot of the classroom crap before you go. So there's an online module, a series, I think it's like 18 lessons that you can take. And by the way, you can take that and only pay for that and not go to the on-site course and get a lot of information out of that with Bill's instruction and instruction by another guy named Wayne Wiseman, who I think is one phenomenal teacher. So I think there's a lot of ways to approach this. But I do think, even though I've said there's not a legal obligation that I'm aware of now to say... I am per, I'm doing permaculture in my business, that if you want to, it does make sense. I would say at least buy the DVDs of Jeff and Bill and, and, and be able to go out and discuss permaculture the way the people that created the damn thing explain it. Because the downside of PDCs, from what I've seen and reviewing curriculum and things like that, of other people saying they're doing it, there are people out there doing PDCs issuing certifications that are absolutely not teaching the core fundamentals that were set up by Mollison. They're not. And they're not teaching the components of it that have been brought in by Lawton. They've gone off on the, you know, David Holgram, we're going to save the world from carbon model. And Holgram was intimately involved early on, disappeared for 20 years, came back and rewrote the third ethic. And to me, if you go to a PDC and they're teaching that, they should call it something else. Those people, honest to God, piss me off. Because it was 20 years of scraping, scratching, and busting his ass done by Mollison, who met up with Lawton back in 1983, and those two people made the word mean what it means today. And for people to come along and piggyback on it and change it into something that it is not, to me, is a disgrace to the word. And they should use a different word. Call it hippie culture. Call it nirvana culture. I don't care what you call it. But to me, if it doesn't follow the prime directive in three ethics, as they were conceived originally, not rewritten and changed, it's not freaking permaculture. Permaculture is not about redistributing the production of other people. It's about reinvesting surplus production in order to further care of the earth and care of people, including the people doing the daggone work. So I would say if you go up and see Bill in, at Midwest, you're going to get that. If you go see Ben Falk, you're going to get that over the head with a club. I can't really speak for anybody else, but I can tell you there are some other people out there who I will not name, but you're going to get Guns Are Evil at a PDC. I, I don't even think that belongs at a PDC. I talked about it a little bit from a positive standpoint, but only because Ben asked me to come do it as like an extracurricular activity. It wasn't part of the main PDC. I don't even think that discussion goes with a PDC. So I think you need to be careful about where you're – if you're going to invest the time and money to do this, talk to the instructor. Ask for a curriculum outline in advance. Ask, how much time are you going to spend telling me that my car is the problem versus how much time you're going to be telling me how to fix the problem? And if they don't like that question, you've got the wrong instructor. Go with one of the guys that I've mentioned. I'm sure there's other great instructors out there. If you're out there and you are an instructor and you're sticking to the core curriculum, you're doing the things 
that, that are that, that have come out of the founder's mouth, and you're you're carrying on that work. Tell me about yourself, and I'll recommend you. But if if you're going to spend, and I've seen it, five hours of a PDC beating people up for the vehicle they drive or the size of the house they're in, that's not really the point. Now you can teach them about efficiencies. That is part of the point. But so I, I know I've ranted a little bit on this, but. Overall, I think it's going to be highly dependent on where you go and who teaches the course and what you're expecting to get out of it. And don't get me wrong, if you're a Nirvana hippie type and you like that and you want to go to a PDC that focuses on that, well, I'll just say it this way. Go see Skeeter and you can look that up and figure out who that is, right? And you'll get that. Now, if you want the the core curriculum, go see Wilson, go see Falk. Or make the trip overseas sometime and go see Jeff and Bill or get their PDC course on DVD. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, uh, Survivor here on the uh, forums. Uh, you mentioned something recently about um, black powder revolvers. And, um, these things in some states, you don't, uh, you know, less likely to be confiscated in the event of uh, that scenario. But um, <clears throat> I had talked to somebody who's kind of made me, told me that, uh, these black powder revolvers are very inaccurate, and that you couldn't really hit anybody at any slight distance or anything. And it almost made it sound like you wanted to be real close. And uh, I, I guess also, um, I realized that there can, there's actually black powder cartridges that you can get. I don't know if you have to load them yourself or you can buy them or that type of thing, which uh, <clears throat> kind of interesting. I, I don't know. I had researched it a little bit at one time, so but it sounded interesting because it was. You get this the, the ball type option, and then you got these cartridges that you can. I guess you have to modify a gun or, or you can get certain ones or something. I don't really know a lot about it, but uh, thanks. First thing I'd say is be careful who you take advice from. Uh, so if you take advice from someone that tells you that they have a negative opinion of black powder cartridge or black powder uh, uh, revolvers. And you say, well, how many do you own? And they go, none. And they go, how many have you ever owned? And they go, none. And you go, well, how many have you ever shot? And they go, none. Well, then eh, the advice is worth what you paid for it. Um, will a, you know, a, a 44 caliber uh, black powder revolver uh, hold up against even a moderately priced middle-of-the-road modern revolver from an accuracy standpoint at 20 yards if the shooter's up to it? No, it, it won't. It's just not going to. Uh, will it hold center of mass on a target 15 yards away if you know what the hell you're doing? Absolutely. And there's a lot of dead people over the years before the advent of cartridges that would attest to that if they were still around to attest to that. They can't because they're laying in the ground somewhere. Uh, they'd be dead by age now, but they would have been happy to tell you at the time that getting shot with a 44 caliber lead ball, uh, is especially in the chest or the face, is not a good thing. So it's definitely a lethal weapon. It definitely has its limitations. They definitely require a lot more maintenance, uh, and they require a little bit more skill. But they're a they're a viable alternative if you're in a situation uh, where you know having the other type of options not available. And in many states, you got to check your local laws. And I think you're in Mass, and I think Mass has the most restrictive daggone firearms laws, other than maybe Illinois in the country. And they probably consider a black powder pistol a handgun. But in many places, a black powder handgun is just a black powder handgun, and it, it goes under a completely different set of regulations. And you can go to a company like Bass Pro Shops or Cabela's and order one, and they'll just send it to your house. 
and no paperwork, no background check, no nothing. So it's got that going for it. It's not a, a high-end self-defense tool, but it's better than a sharp stick. So that, that's one part of it. Now, black powder, black powder cartridge is a totally different animal. As soon as you're able to put a cartridge in something, in, it, it really starts to kind of become a modern firearm, even if you're using black powder. So there are conversion kits that are designed to convert a black powder uh, pistol into a cylinder-based, like, you know, modern equivalent, but they have to use lower-pressure black powder-loaded cartridges. There are some companies that do that, uh, and they're, you, know, you can load your own. And you can do it either with uh, true black powder, or you can do it with something like Pyrodex, which is like a modern replacement for black powder. It's less corrosive, and it's what most modern people shooting black powder uh, use something like Pyrodex or an equivalent uh, as well. But that, generally speaking, now you're into a modern gun. Now, it doesn't mean you couldn't get the frame for one and the conversion kit for the other and put them together, and maybe, but you've manufactured a firearm at that point, and you're in violation of you know, probably local laws, and as far as I know, ATF laws well federal law as well so uh, without basically reporting it as a created new handgun okay so that's that's the other side of that but in a civil breakdown at least you'd have something if you had a black powder uh, pistol what i recommend it is something that you load up strap to your waist and carry around certainly not in massachusetts and overall no it's just an old technology that's still around that fits a space for some people where they otherwise wouldn't be able to have anything like a handgun at all. And I, I can tell you this. Any naysayer out there, uh, ask them if they'd like to be shot in the chest at about, you know, let's say seven yards with one of these, these handguns. And for home defense, that's about as far as you're going to shoot. And for most handgun shooting, I, I, you know, here's how I look at this. I have a good friend, and he said to me, you know, a handgun is basically uh, something that's designed to be used at about 5 meters or less, so 15 feet. And I'm like, you're out of your freaking skull. So we went out to a range together, an indoor range, and I have a little Ruger 22, uh, what do you call it, the, the, not the, I'm thinking of Browning Buckmark now, what do you call it, the, uh, the Mark II. And um, the, this range, you know, you could back it off. I think it was 40 meters you could back this off. That's a pretty far shot. We had like a man-sized target. So I send this thing all the way down to the end, and I, I rack off about, you know, seven rounds, and I bring it back up. And I've got this, you know, several of the rounds in a group about the size of maybe a baseball centered on the 10 ring in the dead center of the target and a few more like in the head. And he goes, can you do it with, you know, something more substantial. So send it back down, pull out the 1911, rack off a couple shots, and it's not as tight a group, but it's the damn dead guy. And he says, yeah, how long was it in between each shot? And he says, now pull it back in and, and, and you know, take your shots at, you know, 15 feet. And, you know, I have to fire slower than I'm allowed at that range, and I got this kill zone that's, you know, like a, like a golf ball. And he's like, that's my point. When you're being shot at, you don't – so if you're talking about tactical use, that range is, is going to be brought in anyway. And he's dead on because his response was, how fast could you shoot at that range with a, with a, with a rifle or a carbine? And it's basically as fast as I can shoot controlling the muzzle and, and, and getting back on sight and as fast as my finger can pull and I can hold those groups in even much further out. And that was his point. So when we're looking at a handgun, we're already looking at a limited range tool. 
But we're not looking at something, you know, like the old, they see, you know, cartoons and crap where they mock them. Like, I think it was Simpsons where they had everybody with a Derringer and they were just bouncing off beer bottles and stuff. Doesn't work that way. Getting shot sucks no matter what you're going to get shot with. And again, you know, a 36 or, or 44 caliber hunk of lead, uh, going through your body does a lot of damage. So it's an old technology. And it would be something that if there ever was confiscation, it may not be grabbed. I don't think that was really the angle I was coming at, though. I think it was more along the lines of at least it's something. And, you know, you can do that with a combination of, let's say, a muzzle-loading rifle and a handgun. And you've got hunting tools as well as defense tools at that point. Let's go ahead and uh, take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Eric from the cornfields of Indiana with a fun question. Uh, with all the minutia and everything about detailing this, that, and the politics, I figure it's time for a fun one. So here it goes. By the way, I am not the guy in the cornfields in Indiana who just won $14 million in the Powerball. But pretend I did, or rather, what would Jack do if Jack had $7 million? One can presume that uh, you would set it up for disbursements where you get some money to live on, and you wouldn't worry about the rest of it, but especially with what we know about paper money, fiat, how would Jack go about structuring these things so that he was as safe as could be with, you know, a certain amount to play with because you have to have some risk to earn some of this money. And I also understand uh, with your bug out location and want to turn your uh, livelihood into a producer, and that stuff goes without saying, but... Uh, how would you structure the money-wise? Make this a fun economic sauce for us. Thanks a bunch, Jack. Hope you have a great one. I appreciate everything you do. Keep it up. Bye. Well, it sounds like you want me to answer this question from a financial management standpoint instead of a, a commodity investment, personal commodity investment standpoint. And frankly, since it's supposed to be a frank, fun question and that wouldn't be fun for me, I'm not going to do it. And some of the things you say go without question don't go without question because it's what I would do with the money and how I would do those things with a, uh, a bug allocation. I probably wouldn't even do what you would normally consider a bug allocation, though I'd probably have one somewhere. That's not really what I'm going to talk about. Well, first thing I would do is if, if I got blessed with something like $7 million, let's say that was how much money I actually got. So I was the $14 million guy, and by the time the government gets done parasiting my winnings, I end up with about seven. I think that's why you came up with the number of half. What would I do with it? Well, the first thing I would do is take about $2 million and set that aside, and that would be my giving fund. And, and I would give about $2 million away. And I think I could solve the pressing problems of my family on both sides, my sisters, my father, uh, and my wife's sisters, and the nephews and nieces that are still kind of coming up in the world, and, and, and a couple grandnieces with about half a million dollars. I think I could get basically put them to par with everything in their life, uh, and I think I would do it. And I think some of them would be like, no, don't do it, and I would do it. I think some would be like, do more, and I wouldn't do more. I would set them up to where basically it's up to you now. And I think, on, and I won't say which side, but it's probably not my wife's side, so you can figure out what that means, that what I would do for – let's just be blunt, my two sisters, they would undo in a year, and that would be their problem. But I would do that. And, and, and that would leave me about a million and a half, which I would put into a charitable trust. And I would try to make that money last as long as possible with safe, secure investments, the safest and most secure investments. I could hire somebody to find for me because I would hire somebody to do something like that and say, how much can we give away every year and make this thing last for 50 years or more? 
right? And maybe that's $100,000 a year. If that's what it is, that's what it is, because I'd rather have that trust live on than to just give all the money away right away. So that's what I would do there. And I would hand-select the places where that money went. That would leave me with $5 million. Uh, I would definitely put a significant amount of money in silver and gold as a long-term storage. I would definitely put a significant amount of money into land, uh, specifically long-term growth timberland. Um, but we're still talking. I could do a lot of that with under a million bucks. But let's say we're playing with $4 million now. Um, I would look for a property for myself. And I would probably set something like a million-dollar budget. I mean, I would look for, you know, a couple thousand acres or something like that, really beautiful home. Maybe I would build, I don't know, but I would uh, I would do that, and I would give my wife the house that she really wants. And it would never be what you would think of when you hear the price tag because it would never be a million-dollar mansion. It would be a beautiful quarter-million-dollar house on $750,000 worth of land. I would invest heavily into the infrastructure of that land, the earthworks of that land. I would call up Lot and say, what does it take to get you here now? And I'd have Jeff Lott come design my whole property right from scratch. And uh, I would build that property in a variety of ways. I would not so much be concerned with direct cash flow out of the, out of the property from like selling harvest. That's never been my deal. Uh, excessive harvest would be given away. And uh, what I would really want out of the property is a school. A school of homesteading, a school of skills, uh, more of a wilderness skill type thing, hunting, tracking, things like that, and a permaculture school. And I want that school to be an inter-collaborative school where a person could come and learn a little bit of everything or focus on one thing, and we would run programs like that. So that would be where I would sink the investment portion, and the revenue flow out of a school like that, to me, would exceed whatever you could produce by growing corn and wheat or apples or pecans or things like that. But there would be components of that built in uh, to the property. I think I would take a real stab at putting together a prepper community, not on my land but adjacent to my land, uh, with a common area and maybe share resources from the school with that common area. Uh, and, and to me, that's a huge asset. Having 40 or 50 families of the same mindset close to me, that is a bigger asset than money uh, because that means we can do things without money. Um, I'd do a lot of traveling and things like that as well. Uh, I would probably put aside about a half a million dollars into what we would call TSP Growth and Investment Fund. And that would be designed specifically to grow the survival podcast and the survival podcast community. I would probably write a check for $10,000 the day that I got my $7 million and send one of those checks each to every single moderator on our forum. And the ones that tried to send it back, I would go to their house, slap them in the face, and make them put the check in their bank because there would be those of them because the service that they've done to grow this community is amazing. So I think that would probably come out of the giving fund. But as I think about it, that would be something that I would want to do. And there's a couple of them. Let's just say that, that, that maybe the admins would get an administrator bonus because of the work that they've done uh, on the site. But I would set aside this, you know, maybe a half a million dollars and say this is the Grow TSP. And I would hire some people to do things like one to basically be do what Dorothy does to the like the professional level of you know scheduling research, putting together my outlines to streamline the amount of time I have to put in to producing the show. I would probably hire someone to do editing, video, and audio full time, and uh, that way the, between the scheduling and the, all the setup, I could just do the stuff 
and walk. I wouldn't have to do the show notes, all the individual research. In other words, I could crank out a hell of a lot more material. I'd say, let's build this. Let's build this into something, and here's how it would work. I'd probably hire two or three, maybe four people to do that. Don't apply because I don't see the $7 million coming anytime soon. I'd say, here's a half a million dollars in funding. I'm damn sure going to watch you over it. I'm just not going to give you carte blanche on it, but we can pay your salaries out of this. We can pay your benefits out of this. We can pay for things that you believe a business needs if you bring that to me out of this. But that means that we're going to look at the cash flow of the business up till now. We're going to look at the surplus cash flow. We're going to figure out how much surplus cash flow goes to me and how much surplus goes into this to keep funding it and building it and making a little bit employee-owned. But if you run this number to zero – then I'll go back to doing what I did. I don't care that I have another couple million dollars sitting in the bank. You're not getting any more. It would be a pay-per-performance type of thing. But I would love to take TSP to kind of another level. And to me, that's more powerful than, well, I'm going to invest my money in whatever because it doesn't matter if the dollar falls apart. If I have a business model and I'm putting out value and people are spending whatever new money exists, you're still running. And see, that's the difference. When you ask most people about something like this, they're going to think about investing. When you ask an entrepreneur, they're going to think about building productive systems where it's land production, business production. It doesn't matter because it doesn't matter if, a, if an economy falters and you've built a resilient business. You can adapt the business to the economy. There is nothing you can put your money into investment vehicle-wise that you can do that with. Even cash, you can have enough of a catastrophic currency failure that if it's in cash, you're screwed. So I would put together kind of the savings well of silver and gold. That would be my insurance policy. And I would have a tremendous amount of money left over even after all of that. And I would go find the best finance manager in the world that I could to take care of managing finances. And basically say, you screw this up and I'm going to bury you in the backyard behind the barn. And I want to know every day what's going on, and I want to know why. And that's how I would manage my finances from that standpoint. That would be a small piece compared to the whole, though. And frankly, if that created a cash flow for me that allowed me to just basically live my life in that new setup, that's good enough. And that would allow me to continually build that charitable trust fund. Because honestly, once my needs were met, um, I look at it this way, income can either go back into a business and build a business and create jobs. It can go to charity and, and, and allow me to select who gets what. Or it can go to government, and the government can do with it what I don't want done. So I can invest it, or I can let the government squander it. So at a certain point in my life, regardless of how I get there, if cash flow reaches a certain delta where all the needs and the true wants in my life are met, and I'm able to do the things for people, with people, and for myself and for my wife that I need done, and I've basically given everybody around me that I really care about kind of a helping hand and said, okay, now you're, you're at least at par with life and it's up to you, then at that point my main focus becomes let's take all of the surplus and let's do whatever we can to turn it into charitable money so that I can greater build my social capital, by helping other people build their individual capital, their community capital, their local capital. And I believe there's a lot of great work being done out there, just awesome work being done out there. And the further away from government those organizations are, the more good work they're doing. And in many cases, the smaller those organizations are, 
they're being done. I'd rather get groups like, you know, Brandon Shelton's organization, Bella Ministries. I'd rather get 10 of those and give them $10,000 a piece than give $100,000 to one organization. Because they'll do more that way. They're more agile. They're more responsive. So that's what I would do with it. I know it's probably not the answer you were looking for, but you said it was a fun question, and that's how I would do it, and that was kind of fun. And I think that that's uh, what we would call a blue sky budget. And, uh, you know, I think that's that's how I would handle that. Let's take a, another call. Hi, Jack. My name is Linda, and I'm calling from Massachusetts. My question is about portable solar generators, which cost upwards of about $1,500. What are your thoughts about their value in both short- and long-term power outages? Thanks, and keep up the good work. I'm going to make this real simple. If you go out and buy a charge controller, a charger, good solar panel or two, a couple good batteries, and one of the best inverters that you can get your hands on, and if you buy everything new and everything top of the line, you can put together a system like that for about five to $600. If you get creative with it and start doing things like finding some batteries that maybe are still good but somebody wants to recycle or things like that, uh, and maybe get a little bit creative with looking for used solar panels from people that are doing upgrades on their home and things like that, then you can build one for 150 bucks. If you were to spend $2,000 building uh, a solar generator, if you want to call it that, what you could build for the price that these people sell these things for would do about 10 times more for you than you'll get from buying one of these pre-established systems. Another way of putting this and just making it blunt, there used to be a company that advertised on this site, my site. And they came to me and said, we want to advertise this product. It's it's basically a seed product, and it was this long-term storable seed product. And you guys, if you remember that long ago, you probably know who it is. And um, I knew they had the solar generator, and I thought it was overpriced, but I was okay with it. Because you price things, whatever people will pay for it, they pay for it. Then some of their marketing started coming out. And one particular shock jock uh, in, in particular said things like, this can even power your refrigerator and freezer during a long-term grid outage. Except that it will power the average refrigerator for about an hour, maybe less. So I found their marketing very, very, very misleading. And you know what happens when I have a sponsor who is out doing things, even if they're not doing with the product that's on my site, starts doing something like that, I fired their ass. And it was specifically because of the hype, bullshit, and outright flipping lies around their solar power generator. And I don't think many people out there that are real familiar with the industry right now are struggling with exactly who these people are. And I would not recommend products like that. There are some pretty good compact products that are designed for ruggedness and real portability that seem like they sell at a higher price point than they should, based on what I've just told you. But they're not designed to be something you keep in your house. And I know that this certain product that I'm talking about is no, you know, noted as the portable solar generator, but it's not the way that I'm talking about. Now, you can build one of those robust systems on your own, and you can save money, but for what they are and for what they're designed to be, uh, they're, they're a pretty fair value, but I would still look to building them yourself. Here's the issue. Most people look at this and think this is a really complicated system to build. 
It's not. It's not at all. Um, there's a product uh, on the book list page of my site, uh, on the ebook section toward the bottom, that's called Earth for Energy. Uh, it's gotten a bad rap. It's because they make some pretty spectacular claims themselves on their marketing, like they teach you how to build your own solar panels from scratch. Well, yeah, with crystal, uh, solar crystals that you can buy on eBay, and generally you can get them for less if you buy them slightly damaged, and it does show you how to do it. It shows you how to wire them together. But the big thing that, uh, that it will do for you is it will show you how to build a solar backup system, exactly how to piece it together. And you can do it with use stuff like they're saying to do, or you can do it on your own. But you don't even really need that product. I think the product sells for about 50 bucks. Um, I bought it myself. If you look at the ebooks, there's only four or five of them there. I went through a whole bunch of products like this. There's four. Uh, I bought a lot of them. And uh, I only put the stuff on there that I really thought was value, and that's why I put the Earth for Energy product on there. But, again, you don't need that. It's, it, you can look up how to build a solar backup system and you can do that and you can move into one very very simply you can go out and get yourself a good pair of high-end uh batteries uh you know like a uh, deep cycle batteries that you can get out of any store anywhere uh out there and once you have them you can look up how to wire them in what's called uh, parallel wiring, which means basically positive to positive to power, negative to negative to ground. And I'm not going to go deep into that because it gets confusing. You just look it up. It's not hard. And then those two 12-volt batteries are still going to put out 12 volts, but they're going to have a much higher reserve capacity. By the way, two good marine-grade deep-cycle batteries are going to give you greater reserve capacity than that particular product that we've been talking about. Significantly more. If you want to build it really kind of top-end, then you want to look at something like 6-volt um, golf cart batteries, and maybe four of those. And you can do two in series and in parallel. So basically you're taking two pairs, you do them in series, that, that basic, or you take two pairs in series, and that brings them up to like one giant 12 volt. And then you, you do those in parallel to stay at 12 volts out. It sounds complicated. When you look at a diagram, it's so stinking easy, uh, to, to do that. And that gives you 12 volts, and there's billions of 12-volt inverters out there. But let's just keep it simple, and you go out and you get yourself a couple deep-cycle batteries, wire them together parallel, and go buy a cheap, plain old, everyday battery charger. The kind you plug into a wall and clip onto your battery terminals, and it charges the batteries up. Put them into a good, solid, rubber-made box. Get an inverter, get a power strip. Put the power strip on the outside of the box, everything else in the box. Get one that rolls around. Now you've got a backup power system, right? Yes, it has to plug into the grid, but daggone it, it'll last quite a while to run basic things in your home, and it's not hard to do. You can, I mean, just free information online, you can figure this out. Then, once you've got that built, now you've only, you see, you've only spent maybe 250 bucks now. And this is top-end, brand-new stuff. So now you've at least got the backup power, and you have a lot of money left over. You can do other things until you're ready to move into the solar world. Once you move into the solar world, all you need is a charger, and it's different than the one that plugs into the wall, something called a charge controller that keeps it from overcharging your batteries, and a solar panel. You put maybe another $200 into that, and you've got that done. And if you want to add more to your solar capabilities, you can add more panels as you go. If you want to add more reserve, you can add more batteries as you go. Once you've built it, you could theoretically build one for your entire house. 
because it's a scale model. It's simple. And you could build four of those with brand new equipment for the price of one of these generators, and it will do more for you in a variety of ways. One, you'll have more reserve capacity. Two, you'll have four units. One can be being used while the other one's being charged. Trust me, if you take a system like this and run 300 feet of extension cord from the field where it's sitting out of the sun in your house, you're going to lose a lot of the power as it brings it back into your house. So I just don't like the concept that's out there with the whole industry marketing these damn things. Overpriced, underdelivered, that's my opinion. If somebody has a good one that they can show me that's being marketed this way and prove to me why it's good, I'll change my opinion. But when you look at the the, the amount of time that these systems will actually run something of any significance, and you look at the marketing claims, the grid could be out for decades, and you think this thing's going to keep your refrigerator running? You've got to be freaking kidding me. You would be better off building a backup power system, like I just described, and then once you've built one, build another one. Now you've got two, right? Don't even get solar. Go out and buy yourself a cheap 2,000-watt, two-cycle generator. Put away 40 or 50 gallons of gasoline, stabilized. Use that gasoline in rotation so it doesn't go bad. Every month, take can number one. Dump it into your car. Take the can to the gas station. Fill it back up. Put it in the back of the line and do that. And if the power goes out, you've got a generator, even a little crappy one. You've got two backup power systems. When you, when you, when the power system starts to run low, you plug it back into your generator and charge it back up. Hey, that's going to get you through weeks. Right? So, if you want to go longevity with solar, then you've got to get to like a larger system than these little systems that they're selling you. And you could do quite well doing the work yourself, spending $2,000, $2,500 like some of these systems cost. If you spent that kind of money, I mean, we're talking about a system that would run the lights in your house, probably a TV set, a DVD player, and maybe run the refrigerator for a little bit here and there to, 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 to limp you through. But the system they're selling you for two grand ain't going to do that. Let's take another call. Jack, this is Ryan from Washington State. Um, I was listening to your last uh, feedback show, and you had mentioned something about, or another caller had talked about having an encounter with some neighbors, and there, there was something that they weren't sure about. And you had mentioned uh, the Colorado incident and dealing with somebody in body armor. There's a condition that is called comatidosis. It's uh, C O M M I C O M M O I T E, and the second word is C O D I S. And what this is is this is a heart arrhythmia that's caused by blunt force trauma to the chest. And I don't know if any of your listeners have ever been wearing a ballistic vest when they've been shot. I can ex I can testify that it is not the most pleasant thing to have happen. Well, if you deliver enough trauma to the same area, to a specific area, it can cause a heart arrhythmia and it can stop the threat. And you can verify this with any physician. Uh, there's actually a procedure called the pericardial thump that's based on this. So, or actually, uh, one of the reasons they stopped teaching the pericardial thump is because it can cause this. So, I thought your listeners would be interested in that. And uh, again, thanks for the show, Jack. Bye. Well, I, I try to look that condition up the way that the caller spelled it and found absolutely nothing. So I don't know if you spelled it wrong because you're on the phone and nervous or something, but 
Um, I can't, and I can't find anything that sounds like it. But what it sounds like to me is cardiac concussion. And it's definitely a real condition, and if this is a different condition, then that's fine. But cardiac concussion is basically what was described, that this blunt trauma to the chest and heart can cause the heart to go into arrhythmia. And unfortunately, every year we lose uh, young people to this uh, in, in sports like football. Uh, where they're hit, or we have people that are uh, in injury, blunt trauma injuries, like being impacted by an automobile that experiences. And it's it certainly, if someone takes multiple shots uh, to the chest uh, while wearing body armor, especially from heavier caliber weaponry with significant foot pound of energy transfer, it's something that could happen. Would I bet my ass on it that it's going to happen? No. But what I also kind of want to point out, and I think it's more to the caller's point, is the media would have you believe that had there been armed citizens uh, present at the Colorado shooting, because this guy had body armor on, which, by the way, we're not even sure he did, because the shopping list doesn't say anything about body armor. It says something about a ta- Ranger tactical vest, which is not body armor. So it may be that they accentuated that. But let's say that he was wearing, you know, uh, good quality body armor that you know, the bullets would have just bounced off them and not it, no it doesn't work that way at all um, if you have a really big strong guy punch you in the stomach or the chest it doesn't penetrate and go into you and cause tissue damage per se but it doesn't feel good either now imagine you know you're talking about a, about a ton of energy transfer in some of these rounds, or even, you know, a half a ton of energy transfer in some of these rounds. I think that's more accurate. I don't know why I said a ton. A half ton of energy, even a quarter ton of energy, uh, in the space the size of a quarter inch or a third of an inch being transferred into the body. No. When people get hit wearing ballistic armor, it, it prevents death usually if it prevents penetration. And, and, you know, the handgun rounds carried for self-defense, generally it would. But it doesn't just bounce off harmlessly. It's not like the guy would just be like, oh, okay, I'm going to shoot you. No, it doesn't work that way. It's not like the movies, and it's not like dadgone video games where, oh, I got the armor now, and I can get hit four times and just keep it. Oh! So I, I think that really is a good point. I think the other side of that is that when we look at adding body armor to our preps, we need to be understanding about what it would do and would not do for us. It's certainly better than not having it, but it's not like some super shielded suit. It's not like Star Trek and you raise shields, Captain, and, you know, then the other side of it is you can only cover so much, right? You've got the face, you've got your throat, you've got your arms, you've got your legs, right? So, I mean, there is even some armor that covers parts of the legs and things like that, but every time you up armor, you reduce mobility as well. So, it's... It's something that we need to look at from a standpoint of how much danger do we really think we're in from a tactical encounter and when would we deploy it for our own personal use. And I'll tell you this, it wouldn't hurt a damn thing to put three or four rounds into somebody wearing it and 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 try to defend yourself rather than crawl underneath a table or a, underneath you know a, a chair or cower and hope that he passes you by. Um, body armor is not, again, something that just guarantees survival. And that's important from two sides of it, from being on the receiving end of some madman wearing it to being on a defending situation where you're the one that's armored up. Um, there's plenty of people that have been saved by body armor and plenty of people that died inside it. And that's just a limitation that we need to understand. But the bigger point, I think, is that any of the media hype around this, like, well, it would have mattered because is bullshit. And I think that's what the caller was really getting to. Anyway, let's take another call. 
Hey, Jack, this is Houston in uh, Tyler, Texas again. Hey, man, there was a few things I wanted to touch on, see if you were interested in touching on them. Uh, first off, just like you, you talked in the episode about raising your kids, uh, that was such a great episode, man, being, being a father. Um, but uh, about preparedness, uh, it being a mindset uh, as opposed to something you just do. Uh, if you could touch more on that for people, that'd be great, man, because it's, it's something that, that we need to just have instilled in us and in, in, in a mindset that, that we have set uh, as opposed to, like I just said, something that, that you just do it uh, to do it. Um, and also uh, about just normal EDC stuff um, that's not necessarily for a shit-hit-the-fan type of situation or a bug-out situation. Uh, that's just good to have. Uh, for instance, I've got a little Altoids tin kit uh, that I have on me that I replenish every time I use it. You know, it stays in the vehicle. I've got one in the bags also, you know. Um, but it comes in handy constantly, uh, whether, you know, you get a headache and, you know, you need your Tylenol or your medication or you forgot your medication at home or even if it's something as little as a Band-Aid. Um, man, uh, I just wanted your, your thoughts on those, man, and uh, see if you could touch on those a little bit more. Uh, God bless you, man. You're a true patriot, and thanks for everything you do. That's well, a good question, and it's it's something that could be an entire show, and, and frankly has been many times in the past. In fact, I'd like to think that uh, the entire concept of survival podcast is more about the mindset than the stuff anyway. A mindset, the skill set, what you put in your heart, what you put in your head. And, and those two things together trump any component or gadget or gizmo or thing. It's not that, you know, storing food and doing some of these other things isn't important or having stuff that's designed to fill in the gaps for self-reliance in, in periods where the systems around you are in some sort of failure aren't important. But what you think and how you think is, is far more important than what you have. Because the reality is it's you, you almost have to take somebody out in the middle of a desert and not, you know, a, a scrub desert with some stuff. But I mean like Sahara sand desert where you look in all directions, you can't see a tree, you don't see a rock, all you see is sand. Stick them there, put them in a boat, and the only thing they have is that boat, little raft floating in the middle of the ocean to put somebody in a position where they really don't have any resources at all. There's almost always resources. That doesn't mean that, you know, Mother Nature won't kick your ass if you give her the chance, because she will. She'll kill you if you give her the chance. But if I'm in a forest, I have things that I can use to lash things together. I have things I can use to create shelter. I have things that you can use to create fire. My life is easier if I'm carrying some basic equipment, but there's stuff there. You put me in an urban environment. There's tons of things that can be used as cordage and containers and things like that. So the way you think, obviously, is much more important. But the overall uh, viewpoint, I think we go way back to episode 251. Uh, years ago, I did a show called Prepper Mentality versus Self-Sufficient Mentality. And I think that would be a good one to listen to. And on the Everyday Carry, episode 717 was about Everyday Carry and Beyond. And I'll put links to both of those shows in today's show notes. But um, on the overall bigger picture, maybe it's time to do a show about that again. This show's going incredibly long today. Uh, I'm having fun doing it, but if I go much deeper into that one, we'll be pushing two hours on this show. Uh, I already don't know how I'm going to get it to upload across a satellite. Uh, I may have to run into the office just to upload today's show, so if it came out late, you, you, you know why. Uh, but, yeah, definitely mindset. And the way we think is, is the key to, to basically being able to survive and thrive in the first place. 
And I think that's where a lot of people fall down because they all want to know what do I buy, where do I live, how much land do I need, how many seeds should I have, how many rounds of ammo should I store, how much rice should I store, how many beans, I don't know, man, whatever you think you need. But come to that conclusion based on reality, not something you read in a book by somebody that wrote a book about society breaking down in a way that, frankly, it ain't ever going to break down. Where every character is the same, if you know what I mean, right? Don't react in fear. React with boldness and decisiveness and think, always think. Because the reality is, there's been plenty of people who failed to survive. And if we look at their situation... And we say, what were all the tools that they had available to them? What were all the resources that they had available to them? They could have. So one of the biggest things I think we can do is running mental simulated drills in our head. Imagine that XYZ just occurred. What would I do? So that if it does occur, you know what you would do. Because I've seen people react very, very violent. It's not the word. Very, very dangerous it is the best word. It's a very, very moderate things. I saw a guy one time wreck a car. And the words out of his mouth were, I should just step out in the highway and let the next car run me over. Because he wrecked his car. It, I mean, come on. He was okay. He was alive. He wasn't dead. He wasn't even really hurt. But his insurance was going to go up. Didn't know how he was going to handle it. Now, that's an extreme example. But if you're going to react that way to something that mundane, how are you going to react to the fact that uh, we just had our entire town wiped out by a hurricane or a tornado or an earthquake? Or the, the economy finally has gone into meltdown. How are you going to react to it if you haven't ever thought about what you would do? That's a big part of the mindset component. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, Jason from PA. This year, my uh, mom got me and my kids some uh, popcorn on the cob from a local farm market where she was at in Connecticut, and I decided to plant some, and it seemed to be growing, uh, which is definitely a really cool thing. And I was trying to think on storing that, you know, popcorn seems like it'd be a pretty good storable food, especially if you're, you know, on limited rations and you need something to fill your belly, heat up the popcorn, at least it's filler. Um, but I was reading about concerns with bugs and stuff, and I was thinking back to that pork trigonosis episode you did. Could I freeze, you know, a five-gallon bucket of popcorn to kill, would that kill any bugs or insects? Um, and if I did that, would I still be able to germinate the popcorn afterwards? I mean, uh, can you freeze a seed and um, have it grow? I've got to think that that happens in the wild with snow and stuff naturally, so I would think maybe seeds are resistant to it, but I've never done any experiments. I uh, would love to have some info on this. Thanks, Jack. Uh, the simple answer is yes, you can. Yes, it would probably kill most pest uh, residues that might be in there, eggs of some sort of insect pest or something like that, uh, but the reality is you probably don't need to. I, I, I don't really know what – I mean, if you're thinking that – I want it to last until next season, and I don't want the insects to come alive like weevils or something in it. It's a very tried-and-true method of um, of doing it for long-term food storage, and you can certainly do it uh, for seed that you're going to germinate, and it will certainly survive. Seeds are meant to survive the frost. As you said, uh, seeds lay on the ground, things freeze, and then they come back next year. So they're designed to do it. There's, a, there's the big thing, though, is the seed has to be really, really dry. 
if you've got residual moisture uh, in your seed, you're going to have real problems here. Yeah, with seeds hitting freezing temperatures, that's where you get the problems. If there's any moisture, excessive moisture anyway, in the in the seed, then what happens is when when water freezes, it expands, so it can rupture cell walls and damage the seed. That's about the only way that that freezing is going to harm seed. But I don't think you really need to worry about it. If you're thinking, well, I'll have less problems with pests. Uh, next year, it's it's probably not going to really do anything. You're going to have more indigenous local pests than some sort of residue that would be uh, left on the popcorn. I have personally never had a problem storing any type of grain, even if I haven't put it through a freezing process with any type of, uh, you know, weevils or anything like that. Especially if you were to store it in mylar with oxygen absorbers, an oxygen-deprived environment, you know, uh, if there are any little critters in there, they're not going to be functioning very well in a in an O2-deprived uh, environment. And, again, when you're planting it, I, I don't really see the issue. So can seed survive uh, freezing? Absolutely. It just needs to be really, really dry, which it should be anyway. Let's take one more, and we'll wrap up for the day. Hey, Jack. This is Alan calling from Austin, Texas. I got a question about credit card or just personal debt in general. I'm a young guy, married, uh, would like to buy a house sometime in the future. My wife is concerned that with paying off our credit card debt and not carrying any more personal credit that it will affect our credit score and inadvertently affect our ability in being able to obtain a house. Uh, What are your thoughts on this? Uh, I know that you're really against personal debt, and I totally get that, but what's your thought on uh, credit score and being able to purchase a house? Thanks a lot. Appreciate your everything that you do. If I had a dollar for every time somebody worried about paying off a credit card hurting their credit score, I'd be a lot closer to that $7 million blue sky budget we talked about earlier. It can have some effect. But if you're going to carry debt, then then I would say, you know, go out and buy yourself a car and carry car debt. Um, you need a car anyway. Cars are not cheap. They, they cost money. And you can generally get an interest rate of like 4 to 6% on a car loan. Instead of 14, 15, 16 percent, because that introductory 2.9 percent rate on your credit card doesn't stay there. Um, and that's if you feel the need to carry debt like right before you get a loan or something or to build a credit history. And I prefer you didn't even do that. But because you pay off a credit card doesn't mean you have to get rid of it. You could pay it off and leave it sit there and have the credit line. Having it zero is not a bad thing. The only thing that can hurt you with a credit rating is if you have like two credit cards and both of them have like a $50,000 limit on them, and you don't have any balance running on either one of them, it can actually hurt you because a lender is afraid you could get yourself into trouble. You have the ability to borrow too much money that you haven't used yet, and you might do it and then end up in trouble. So that can be an issue where you may want to have, if you have two high-limit credit cards, get rid of one. Um, but the reality is this. Even today, the way to get a loan is to save 10 to 20% of the cost of the freaking house and have good payment records on everything you've done and go to a bank that underwrites its own loan with money and they will give you a mortgage. Now, if you want to get into a house with like a 5% down payment 
FHA, all of that jazz, then yes, get yourself into an ass load of debt. They'll give you a good boy score if you pay on it all the time. And as long as your debt-to-income ratio is okay and you got a high credit score, you can do that. Or instead of giving the credit people all your freaking money, you can save the money for yourself and put in a big down payment. And then you can go get, yes, an FHA or a conventional loan, and they will give you the money. And I don't know, well, I do know where this has come from. I know exactly where this, this mentality has come from. The credit card people, they want you to use their credit card. Now, as much as I'm against credit cards, I'm making you guys a promise right now. On Monday, I'm going to read an article to you with, a, with, with eight, I think it's eight or ten times you should always use a credit card making a purchase. And I'm going to concede that if you pay the balance immediately, and I mean immediately, that on at least half of them, the man makes a very... Valid point. So I'm not a complete credit card Nazi. But this whole thing, if I pay off my credit cards, I'll never get a mortgage. I, oh, it makes me want to take my DeWalt drill, put a half-inch bit in it, drill a hole straight through the center of my freaking forehead. And again, just because you paid your credit card off doesn't mean you have to cancel it. Now, we did. I have no credit cards. I have no – I do not own a credit card. I have debit cards with credit card logo on them, but I do not have a true credit card. When we started looking at getting a loan on our property, or for a new property, no one gave a shit. Now, to be fair, I've bought houses in the past, and that might help some. But I'm telling you, in my experience, even with tighter lending, when you walk into a bank with a 20% down payment, and you find a bank that underwrites their own loans, and you've got good income, then you get a loan. And this this idea... That the way to buy a house is to be over your freaking eyeballs in debt so you have a good boy score. This is you're a retard that likes to be in debt, and you're a good retard, and you pay your debt all the time because that's what the financial liar told you to do. And then you can get a mortgage with a very small down payment right to the extent of what your your, your budgetary limit is. Is what got us into this freaking mess. This is how we got into this mess. And the reality is a lot of people look at it and they go, well, Jack, if I have to put 20% down, I could be five years from buying a house. So be it. So be it. I would rather that you were. I would rather that you said to yourself, if that's really what I want, then what we're going to do is not only are we going to rent, but we're going to, we're going to rent below our means. We're going to be cramped. We're, we're, we're not going to feel like we have enough space. We're not going to be exactly where we want to be. We're going to sacrifice. The kids are going to sacrifice. Mom's going to sacrifice. Dad's going to sacrifice. The freaking dog is going to sacrifice. And maybe the sacrifice is we don't even have a dog yet. We're going to sacrifice. We're going to hunger down. And if we want to do this in three years instead of five years, we got to, we got to do it a little harder. And we're going to save that money up. Because 10% down on a $200,000 house is $20,000. And I believe if you really want to, if you have good enough income to buy a $200,000 house, you can save $20,000 in two years if you really want to. If you really want to. Maybe there's no cable TV. Right? Maybe maybe there's, there's you know, not everybody has a cell phone. I don't know what it is. You can have that stuff later. One of the biggest things that this nation has lost is a willingness to sacrifice today so we can have more tomorrow.
It's one of the most damaging things that ever happened to this nation. A belief that the shortcut was the right route to every destination. See, we don't learn things when we take the shortcut to every destination. The family that hunkers down for four or five years, that busts their ass, dad takes a second job for a year delivering pizzas, every penny of it goes into the house fund. We don't have 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 cable channels with nothing on them. We have rabbit ears in four stations, and one comes in like crap. We don't go out to eat every week. Maybe it's twice a year while we're doing this. There's plenty of opportunity to do all of those things later. Young? No kids yet? Or just having your first kids? This is the time to be in a small place. This is the time to sacrifice. Because this is the time you're going to have the best years of your life. Ten years later, when you're in that big house. Five years later, when you're in that big house. Five years later, you'd be in the house. But ten years later, when the kids are in their teens and you barely see them, you know what? You'd give all you had for them to be three or four years old again and back in that little cramped apartment. It's only a sacrifice while you're doing it. Later, you'll see it for what it was, an investment in the future of yourself and your family. And there's so many people out there that think, well, there's no way to do this. Renting an apartment is just as much as buying a house. There always are ways to do things. There's always a way. Sometimes it's unconventional. Sometimes it really is giving some things up. But I'd rather see somebody give some things up for two or three years, work really, really hard, 16 hours a day if need be. Everything and anything that can be done. And if you've got two adults and no kids yet, then maybe for six months out of the year you barely see each other because you're both working two jobs. But you'd be amazed what happens when you're putting income together like that. You do that, you walk into a bank with forty or $50,000, stay within your means and buy the right house, buy something for about $200,000 or less. They'll throw the money at you. They won't give a damn that you don't have Visa or MasterCard on your credit report, especially when you have it on your credit report from a year and a half ago and it says paid in full. They're already there. Pay them off. Save the money. Make the commitment. And I'll tell you what. If you have twenty dollars or $30,000 in the bank and no other debt, good payment records and good income, and you go to get a, a mortgage and they say, you know, if you had credit card debt, we'd give it to you, then guess what? Go home. Call up the Visa and MasterCard people. Go out and spend some money on it for another month. Go back and get your mortgage. And after they give it to you, Pay it the hell off. But I don't think it's going to happen. But I'll promise you, if the only thing separating you from a mortgage is having credit card debt, there'll be a line of credit card shark, merchant, piece of crap, vermin, ready to put one in your hot little hand. But if you're sitting on a bunch of credit card debt, and you go to get your mortgage, 
and they say your debt-to-income ratio is out of whack, that's going to be a little bit harder to fix. But the big thing, folks, and don't lose sight of this, is just for this question in everything today in America. If we would learn once again to work hard, to sacrifice, to save, and to earn our advancements in society, maybe we could restore this nation to the nation that we, we, we nostalgically wax for. We say, I want the America of my grandfather and my father. I want that America back. Then ask yourself, how did your father, your grandfather, and your great-grandfather conduct themselves in life and do what they did? Your great-grandfather, your grandfather, didn't put a roof over the heads of his family with a visa card. It's a fundamental fact. It's a fundamental reality. At no level of Madison Avenue marketing or financial liar deception will change that. If you want the America that once belonged to the American citizen, if you want the America of a prior generation, conduct yourselves the way that they did. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough. Or even if they don't. In our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way